Well, good morning to each and every one of you. Well, that was a little soft. It was sort of a, a weak hello back. I don't know, I've been here. I haven't been here for a while, but <laughs> well, good to be here anyway. And uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to Judges chapter four. We're going to look at Judges chapter four and five this morning. And uh, I hope you can come out tonight. We're going to look at the subject of Calvinism, especially the subject of election and uh, predestination and election, all those kind of difficult theological words. We're going to look at that tonight. But the theme tonight is, does God want everyone to be saved? And you would think that the answer would be a resounding yes. But some have a different perspective on Scripture. So we want to look at that tonight. What does Scripture teach on that subject? And so I trust that you're able to come out tonight and... um, and hear about that subject. Also want to uh, mention about the uh, Florida Youth Retreat, something we've uh, organized in the Tampa area, but a lot, we invite everyone from, uh, from the Florida area, and some come from Georgia and South Carolina to the retreat, October 17th, 18th, and 19th, with Steve Price. And um, I hope that a lot of the young people here, and it's not just for young people, we feel that anyone of any age can come, mostly young people, but um, um, we just hope that many can come. If there is a financial difficulty, let us know about it, but we, do want, we don't want the finances to be a hindrance to anyone, so um, we want everyone to come, so let us know and uh, register on the Camp Horizon website, and that would be wonderful. Well, we're in Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 of, of Judges, the story of Barak and Deborah. And I just want to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our our subject this morning. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for such an important subject as this one that we have before us. And we would just pray, Father, that you would lead us and guide us. Bless the word of God. Bless the children, Father, that are in the room and the uh, classrooms behind. And we just pray that you'll open our hearts and open our minds, Father, that you might speak to us. Uh, and that we might be obedient to that which you teach us this morning. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you come to a chapter like this, the overriding theme that, um, that seems to speak to me is this, that uh, so often all around us, I'm not sure what it's like in the Miami, uh, Hollywood, Pembroke Pines area, but up and down on my street, there are very few that are Christians. We've gone up and down our street and invited people to Bible studies and to um, youth vacation Bible school. Very few on our street uh, even go to church. Very few that come to vacation Bible school, and you probably feel this too, even have a Bible. We tell them to bring a Bible to vacation Bible school so you get 10 points every night. And what do they bring? They bring a children's story Bible, if they have that, but they don't know what a real, I'm not sure a lot of them ever have seen a real, a real Bible with all the books, all the books of the Bible, Genesis, Revelation. Up and down our streets all around us, we find so few that really know uh, anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a day much like the day, I think, that the judges took place where every man did what was right in their own eyes. Very few, even those in Israel, those who are followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, very few of them were truly faithful. And so when you come to a chapter like this, I think the verse 
in Second Chronicles 16.8 comes to mind, where it says, The eyes of the Lord go to and, th- uh, to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose heart is strong towards him or whose heart is faithful towards him. And I want to challenge each one of us and challenge myself and our family and those where I fellowship that we would be that kind of Christian, that we would be faithful to the Lord. We would be faithful to the things of God. We would be obedient to the commands of the Lord. You know, in a day that Deborah and Barak lived and those in the the book of Judges, so many were not faithful, so few. They were surrounded by the Canaanites and the Amorites and all the other nations around them. So very few were faithful. And I would just hope that we would be faithful to the Lord, that we would be like Deborah, be willing to be responsive, very responsive to what God says to her. You know, Charles and and, um, John Wesley, you know, they came from a family of 19 children. Now, I know there's a few children running around here this morning. Anyone with 19 children in their family, uh, in their immediate family? Um, we, know, we know the Bosworths are approaching that. I'm not sure that that's their goal. But they had 19, Susanna Wesley, 19 children. Seven of them died in infancy, some at childbirth. But she was the wife of a minister in a little village called Epworth, a very small congregation, very, very small. Her whole life was surrounded with a very small, poor congregation. And um, her husband... Um, wrote a little commentary in the book of Job. And that was, there was very little that went on in her life. And she prayed a prayer, though. And you can read about this in her biography, great biography to read. Elizabeth Elliot wrote it. And there's others that's been, that have been written. But she prayed this prayer. She said, Lord, she would pray frequently. She said, Lord, make my life count. Make my life count. That's what we want. I think that we as Christians, we don't want to go through our Christian lives, any of us, where our lives are not making a difference for eternity for the Lord Jesus Christ in some way or some fashion. And her life, her life made a difference because of the children that she raised. And the life of Deborah and the life of Barak made a difference for the Lord for eternity because they were obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just pray for each one of us that we would be faithful We'd be obedient Christians. We'd be Christians that would give our lives in a really serious way to the things of God. Well, let's look at our chapter, chapter 4, and uh, we're going to look at chapter 5 a little bit also. Let's read a few verses. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ahu was dead, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, or the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose, whose host was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth of the nations. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Here we have the scene, the situation. Turn. Just keep your finger there and just look at chapter chapter 5 for a second. We learn a little bit more about the situation in the early part of chapter 5, verse, um, verse 6. 
were in the days of Shamgar. He was the last judge mentioned in the very last verse of chapter 3. Shamgar, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied. The travelers walked by the byways. And the inhabitants of the villages ceased. The oppression, remember we read before, King Jabin and his general of his host, it says, oppressed the people of Israel, the children of Israel, mightily. They didn't walk openly, fearing for their lives in the byways and the, I'm sorry, in the, the roads. The villages were closed. The highways were closed. The highways were unoccupied. If you were to walk or travel, you found back dirt pathways to go to where you were going. There was great opposition. There was little food. There was little freedom. We find out why this was, why God sold them into captivity or sold them into an occupation by this king. Look what it says a little bit later in verse 8. Why was this? Why did this happen? It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But we find out some more in verse 8. They chose new gods. They left the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They left Jehovah. They went after new gods. And it says, was there a shield or spear seen among the 40,000 of Israel? And so we see here in this passage, we see the children of Israel as a whole turning after new gods. We see Jabin and Sisera oppressing the people of Israel. And we see very few interested in spiritual things in the days that Deborah lived and the days that Barak lived. Yet God was going to raise up someone. And in our day, I think we live in a day, maybe not exactly like this day. We still can drive on the highways. We still live in villages. But God, many are not interested in spiritual things. I find it all over. Very, very few are interested in spiritual things. Very few Christians are interested in spiritual things. Very few Christians even read their Bibles on a weekly basis, not even on a daily basis. There have been studies shown very, very few Christians even read their Bibles, open their Bibles once a week. Very few pray. Very few go to the prayer meeting. I'm not saying it's like the days of jail and the days of Deborah and Barak, but we live in a spiritual needy time. And um, I think it's a time for God to raise up, raise up women, raise up men, raise up young people. We don't know how old Barak and, and uh, Deborah was, but raise up young people and older ones and Christians who will take seriously the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ and make a difference for their generation. That should be our prayer. You know, that was a prayer of Jim Elliott to make a difference in his generation. And I, I trust that we, in a small way, we have that heart desire in our lives. You may say, well, I don't have any, I don't have any real gifts of speaking. I can't lead a Bible study. I can't. There's so little that I can do. Well, we're going to find out later that God wants us to take the littlest thing that we have. The littlest thing that we have might be a tent peg is all we have and a hammer and a glass of milk and a blanket and make a difference for eternity. Make a difference for all the people of God that live in your day. It might not take very much. It may take an open house and a, a meal. It may take a listening ear. It may take an invitation. It may take some very, very little. There's an assembly in Oxford, Pennsylvania today because an older woman got saved, and, uh, and uh, she was in an apartment complex. 
the Oxhaven Apartments. I lived there when we were first married in Oxford, Pennsylvania. And uh, she said, I am going to witness to my neighbor. I'm going to invite her to my house for a one-to-one Bible study. And she did that. And that lady got saved. She didn't know it, but that lady had four sons. Those four sons were married, and those four sons, those couples, had three or four children each. In time, each one of those couples all got saved, and in time, all their children got saved. About 20 people got saved because one woman (laughs) invited a neighbor in fear and trembling (laughs) to come to a Bible study. She didn't have very much. She wasn't a missionary, wasn't a Bible teacher. She wasn't any of those things, but she was a willing person, just like Jael, just like Deborah. God was raising up for that generation someone who was going to make a difference for God. Let's meet Deborah. Verse 4, it says, after you read all of the bad news about that generation, and we read about Deborah. Now, Deborah's name, we don't make much of it, but her name means bee, like a honeybee. Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, judged Israel at that time, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So here we have, we meet meet Deborah. Let's turn the page and look at chapter 5 for a minute. Uh, What does Deborah call herself? Does she call herself a judge? No. Does she call herself a prophetess? No. When it's all said and done, what does she call herself? Does she call herself a ruler? Does she call herself the great leader of Israel? Does she call herself the great deliverer of Israel? No, she doesn't call her any any of those things. We read in chapter 5, verse 7, she says, I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. A mother in Israel. In Israel, that's what she saw herself as someone who loved people, someone who cared about people, someone a mother will do almost anything. The mothers I have known will do almost anything for their children. They will lay down their lives for their children. They will sacrifice. They will give everything they have for their children. They will protect them and they will love them and they will care for them and they'll feed them and they'll to everything that that child needs. And that's what Deborah did. Gave herself sacrificially. Did she she see herself as a great leader? I'm not sure. But she was passionate and gave herself in the service of God. And she made a difference in her generation. What was the difference in Deborah? What was the difference? Yes, she was a prophetess. And what's interesting about Deborah, there there are four, we'll say there are four prophetesses in the entire Bible. There's Huldah in the days of Josiah, just mentioned very briefly, was a prophetess. Miriam, sister of Moses, back in Exodus 15, was a prophetess. Anna, we read in the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, at the birth of the Lord Jesus, or the bringing of the Lord Jesus to the temple. She was a prophetess, and we read about Philip the Evangelist had daughters, and they were prophetesses. All of those others had a very short-lived Um, short-lived mention, we'll say, in Scripture. We mentioned briefly, they don't have much uh, place uh, as far as as Scripture content about their lives. And when we come to the book of Judges, 
It's not a trivia time, but there were 12 judges. How many of those judges were prophets? How many of those judges were called prophets in the book of Judges? How many times does the word prophet even occur in the book of Judges? Once. And it's not regarding ever those 12 judges, but she's called a prophetess. Two chapters about her life. And I think one of the reasons why uh, her, the fact she was a prophetess, she was a judge, she was a, she was a wife, I think the leading thing in her life was that she was responsive. The word of God made a difference. When God spoke to her about something, she stood on it. She took it seriously. She laid down her life for whatever God said to her. Notice a few things about, about this. God speaks to her and says, you are going to win a great victory. There's no army. We just read there's not a shield or a spear in all of Israel. There's no army. There's no general. They have no weapons. They have an enemy that has 900 iron chariots and a great host and a great general. And for 20 years, they mightily oppressed Israel. God says to Deborah, you are going to win a great victory. God is going to rout this great army, the greatest army assembled in the book of Judges, the most powerful army assembled, and you are going to win a great victory. And she believed it. She didn't say, but how? I don't read that. She didn't say how. She didn't say who. She didn't say, is this possible? I'm not sure this is going to work. What does she do? In verse 6, she called for Barak, the son of, Anu, uh, uh, um, the son of Abinom, out of Kadesh, Naphtali, and said, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? That's all she needed. Hath not the God of Israel commanded? Go and assemble, go and get an army of 10,000 men. And she, he did that. He got 10,000 men, go to Mount Tabor, and I will draw the enemy to you with all the iron chariots and all of his hosts and all of his weaponry and all of their skill and all of their training and all their experience. I will bring the army to you, and you will bring, you will win a great victory. God will rout this enemy. We don't read anything about how you will, how they will arm themselves. Will be pitchforks. Will be shovels. What will they have to fight? Not a spear, not a shield, not a dagger, not a weapon, in all of Israel. And yet she says God will win. Notice a couple of things about the word of God in her life. First of all, she says the Lord God of Israel hath commanded it. That was enough for her. She didn't need any more than that. And I wish that's all we needed. That's, I wish that's all I needed sometimes. The Lord tells me to do something hard. I read the word of God. The Lord begins to speak to my heart about doing something difficult, uncomfortable, thing that I'm not really interested in doing. And I'm busy already. I don't want to do that thing, but I know the Lord has said, add that to the things that you're doing. And I know I have, I rationalize, I say a lot of different things. I wish I was more like, Deborah, the Lord God of Israel hath commanded it. Notice also in verse, in verse 14, the enemy comes. Barak is there with the 10,000 on Mount Tabor. The 10,000 
I'm sorry, the 900 iron chariots and the host of Sisera's army and all that they have and all the training is down, down below. And in verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, I like this. I think he was a little nervous. He was a little not sure what to do. And she says, up. She probably shouted it. She probably like a real general. She wasn't a general, but like somewhat excited about what God was going to do. She says, up, for this is the day which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thy hand. Is not the Lord gone out before you? This is the day where God is going to fulfill his promise. God is going to fulfill the commandment he has given to us. Let's not hesitate. Let's not wait. Up, let's get into the battle. This will be a great day, a great day. And it was a great day. Why could she, how could she say that? On what basis could she say that? Let's get into that battle. We are going to win a great victory today. She could say that. And she stood on the promises of God, the commandments of God, the word of God saying, let's act. Sisera was a little bit vacillating. We read about him a little earlier. Deborah says to, to Barak, I want you to go into battle. I want you to get an army. God's word has commanded it. And what does he say? Look with me at uh, verse 8 and verse 9. If you go with me, Barak, the general, the leader of the forces of Israel, if you, Deborah, go with me, then I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. And she says, I will surely go, notwithstanding. The journey that thou takest is not for thy army, is not for thy honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak in Kadesh. Here is Barak, the great general. He says, I'm not going to go if you don't go. I'm not going to go to battle if you don't go. I know the Lord commanded it, but I'm not going to go if you don't go. And so they go together. And we find down, verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled on his feet. Now, how did this victory come about? When we go to chapter 5, we go to chapter 5 and we look at verse 21 and 22. It appears that when the two armies met for battle, there at the foot of the hill, foot of Mount Tabor, 900 chariots, and God sent a tremendous rainstorm, a pounding, thundering. The heavens opened and, and the rains descended. And those chariots, those iron chariots, got stuck in the mud, sinking into the mud. They couldn't move forward or back. You wonder, why did, why did Sisera get out of his chariot and run on his feet? Because his chariot could not move, stuck. And there they battled these men who had come out of their chariots and every one of them. They fought them. Notice what it says. Where they come from, we read Harohesh in, uh, of the nations, which is near the coast, 60 miles from Mount Tabor. This army, this army of barracks, they pursued them all the way to Harosheth. 60 miles, they pursued them, every one of them. And it says there was not, verse 16, 
there was not one of them, one man left. Great victory. Those who are oppressing Israel all of these years, a great, great victory. But Sisera escaped. Sisera escaped, and he runs by, by he runs a few miles from there to the tent of jail. We read a lot. We read some background of jail and her husband Heber in verse 11 of chapter 4. She came from the Kenites. The Kenites settled in the, in the tribal area of Judah, and they became faithful. They weren't Jews, but became faithful and loyal to the Jewish people and, the, and the, um, those of Judah. And she's in her tent. Who is jail? Jail's a housewife. We don't know that she ever had a weapon in her home. Don't know she had a spear or a sword or a shield. She had a family, most likely. She had a husband. We read about her husband and had children, and she was a housewife. Now, it is said, I read some commentaries, and they say that the role of the woman back in the days of judges, I think is unfair, and I think is not right, but this is just the way it was, that they were the ones to erect the tents. They were the ones who would hammer in the tent pegs and wield the big, heavy hammer. These weren't little tents, that's you little pop tents. Pop, what do you call them? Pop tents. When we were kids, we all the probably kids my age, we had a pop tent and we put it in the backyard. And maybe one person turning sideways could sleep in it. This was a big tent. This was a real tent for a family. And she would take those tent pegs. I can see this big, huge hammer. And she'd be hammering in those tent pegs. That was her job. I would... I picture her, maybe I'm wrong, but I picture her as a muscular, strong, big woman. Maybe she's not. Maybe she's a frail kind of person. But she can handle a hammer and a tent peg. And Sisera comes to her house, her tent, the door of her tent. And uh, verse 17 tells her about this. And Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And there is peace between Jabin the king of Hazor in the house of Heber the Kenite, they come to her and she says, come, turn in here, my Lord, come in here, fear not. And he says, can I have a glass of water? He's, he's parched. He's been running for two or three miles for his life. And she says, I'll give you milk. I'll give you much better than, than water. I'll give you a glass of milk and I'm going to cover you with a blanket. And he falls fast asleep. And she takes an extra ten peg. That's all she had. Didn't have a sword. Didn't have a spear. Didn't have a weapon. Wasn't trained in weaponry. Wasn't trained in the use of that. She was just a housewife. A mother. A wife. But she was loyal to the things of God. She was loyal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is interesting to me, so few in Israel were loyal to God. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They followed after new gods, but not Deborah. Two women in this chapter. Two women are mentioned in the same chapter. Jael and Deborah were different. They were faithful and they were obedient. They were faithful to God and obedient to God in the things they had. She didn't have much in that tent. She had a glass of milk. She had a blanket. She had a hammer. And she had a tent peg. And that which she had, she used for God's honor and God's glory. It is a gruesome thing. 
when we read in chapter 5, I don't even want to read this to you, but it says, when she hammered that nail into his head, it says in chapter 5, in the King James, she hammered his head right off his body. Here it says she hammered in this chapter, she hammered that tent peg right into the ground. She didn't stop right into the ground. No it's interesting to me, the mightiest, most powerful man of that region of the world, the one who oppressed all the children of Israel, the thousands that were there in Naphtali and in Benjamin and Asher and all that region, a woman, a weak relatively weak, untrained militarily, no sword, no shield. Her husband may not have been nearby, alone, using what she had. She defeated, she conquered. She brought an end to the greatest, most mighty, most powerful man of that known world by what she had. You know, you can make a difference, men, women, young people. You can make a difference for God for eternity, for your generation, your day, by using what you have. The gifts that God has given to you. The abilities that you have. We should never say, I will not amount to anything. I cannot be anything for God. I can't bring anything to pass because I don't have very much. I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good at writing. I'm not good at leading. I'm not good at speaking to others. I'm shy. Um, whatever I am. I don't know what she was like in speaking. I don't know how she gave a message. I don't know what she was like in doing all of those things. But I know when the time came for her to act for God in that situation, she acted faithfully. She did the best thing she could do. She brought to an end the most powerful man of that day. I was reading recently about Anne Graham Lotz second daughter of, um, of Billy Graham. She got married when she was 18. I'm not sure I would advise my daughter to get married at 18, but maybe if the right person came along. Married at 18, had her first child at 20. She had three or four children. And she got busy in her life as a homemaker. Her husband was a dentist, and she was raising her children, and she wasn't doing anything for the Lord. She was studying the Bible, she was going to church. She was sitting in the back row. And for years and years and years, that's what she did. But one day, she thought, I'm going to go to Bible study fellowship. She's a little older now. I'm not sure what her exact age was. And she sat there and she began to learn the word of God. And then one day, the time came, like jail, I guess. They said, do you want to lead it? And she said, oh, no, I can't do that. I've never led anything like that. I can't, I can't do that. Who am I? I can't do that. And she put it off. And one day she said, I'll do it. And she began to teach that class. And pretty soon they had to move for a larger location. And there are 500 people in her BSF, Bible Study Fellowship class in Raleigh, North Carolina. And from there, she became an evangelist. Never heard her speak. But she is called an evangelist to women. Anne Graham. I guess her father's an evangelist, so it wouldn't be too the Appleton fall far from the tree. But I think all of us have heard of Anne Graham Lotz. She made a difference because she said, yes, I don't know if I'll be a good speaker. I don't know if I can. I've not been trained that way, but God used her to do that. 
Let's go on a little bit further to chapter 5. And we're going to close for this morning. Chapter 5, we have a number of different things that are mentioned. I want to mention three things in chapter 5. The Song of Deborah. Now, one of the first things I like when I come to this passage, and it says it is a song, chapter 5, it is a song of Deborah. First three, ver- uh, the verse, first three words in chapter 5, then sang Deborah and Barak a song. I kind of like this. Now, back when Miriam wrote a song, all of Israel sang, all 600,000 of the men and the women, they all sang together. She led them in a song. But in this case, all the kings and all of Naphtali and Manasseh and Zebulun, all the tribes are there, I think. Great host of people. And she sings before them. I like that. Now it says, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of the son of Abinom on that day saying, but as you go down to verse three, I want to say that Barak was doing the background vocals and that Deborah was singing her heart out because look what it says in verse five, three here. She begins to sing and Barak sings too. But then in verse three here, O ye Kings, the Kings are before her and the rulers are before her and others are before her here. O King, give ear, O ye princes, I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the God, the Lord God of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? I think she was so excited about the things of God. Not that she was a wonderful singer. Maybe she was. Wonderful songwriter. Maybe she was. But she was so excited and so moved by what God had done. How God had saved and delivered and routed and delivered the nation of Israel that she sang to the Lord. She praised his name. She speaks about what he did and how powerful his name, how powerful he, ex- he exerted his power over the greatest known ruler and general of that day. She lifts her voice and she sings and she sings and she gives her all in worship and singing to the Lord. Barak did too. But I think she led and she poured her heart out in singing and worship and praising of the Lord. It's interesting some of the things she says. Look at verse 2. One of the themes in the first nine verses is this, that the people of God, a number, a great portion of the people of God were willing, were willing servants. She was a willing servant. She says in verse 2, Praise ye the Lord for avenging Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. The people willingly, voluntarily gave themselves in service, jeopardized, risked their lives with very few weapons against the most powerful, most powerful nation of that world with no weapons, with very little, except the command of God and the word of Deborah, hath not the Lord God commanded it. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. There it says the people... The people willingly offered themselves to the Lord. Verse 9 says, My hardest words, the governors or the leaders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless ye the Lord. Look down at verse, at verse 19. The kings came and fought. The kings came and fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh and the waters of Megiddo, and they took no gain of money. Don't give me anything. 
I'm willingly coming to serve the God of the God of heaven. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Look down a little bit further. Look down at um, at verse 18. What a great theme. They were willing. They poured their lives out for God. Look at verse 18. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people who jeopardized their lives unto death in the high places of the field. Wow. Over and over again, the great theme is there were people who gave themselves in service in service to the Lord. You know, that challenges my heart, and maybe it should challenge our hearts and maybe your own heart. Am I doing enough? Am I really doing enough for the Lord? Am I giving him what's left over? Am I giving him a little bit of what's left? Is the Lord first in my life? We used to say when I was a new Christian, maybe we don't say it much anymore, if he's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. There's some truth to that. Is he first in our lives? He was first in their lives. In great risk, in great danger, they gave their all. They jeopardized their lives in the high places. The kings gave themselves. The people gave themselves. The rulers, the governors gave themselves. They all a great number of them gave themselves to the Lord. Barak gave himself to the Lord. Deborah gave herself to the Lord. What a great challenge to give yourself to the Lord of service and see God take what we have, take what we have, whatever it may be, a tent peg and a glass of milk and a blanket and a hammer to see what we have and give it to the Lord to say, Lord, I can't do very much, but I'm going to, I'm going to give to you that which I have. I remember in the commanding assembly that I'm from in, uh, in New Jersey, Bethel Bible Chapel in New Jersey, there was a, there was a, a woman, um, there for many years, she said, I'd like to have an after-school Bible club. After-school Bible club for young girls. It was called the Pioneer Girls, girls Club. Remember that? Pioneers, Pioneer Girls Club. And she had about ten girls after school. She went door-to-door, up and down the street, inviting girls to come, and a family came with two girls. One day, one of them, they were coming faithfully. One day they didn't come. They were sick. One of the girls was sick. And uh, she went out to the neighborhood store, next door to the chapel, Chris's Deli, and got a little eight-pack box of crayons and the littlest, skimpiest little coloring book you could ever imagine. She took it down the street to their home, knocked on the door, and she said, we missed Julie this morning, this afternoon, and she said, we're praying for her and thinking about her, and we just want to give her this coloring book and these crayons. That's not very much, right? You know, they came out to the chapel the next Sunday. Heather, uh, uh, Signa was her name. Bill was the husband's name and the two girls. And they never left. They got saved. Bill got saved. I don't know how many times this happens, but he got saved at a message at a Sunday school picnic. So always give messages at Sunday school picnics because you never know who's going to get saved. A lot of them, we don't have messages anymore used to have messages at every Sunday school picnic. I got saved that way. Signa got saved. The two girls got saved. With what? Just willing. A willing servant. Not having very much, but a willing servant. But look also at what we have in this chapter. We have the roll call of those who are unfaithful. God has a record in heaven of those who are unfaithful. And that, that challenges me. You know, there's a roll call. There's a record in heaven. 
To some degree, God records that record here of those that were unfaithful. Look down. Look down at verse 15. In verse 15, it says, the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. As the invitation goes out, all of Israel to come and fight in this great battle. With Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Should I go? Should I not go? I've got responsibilities. Who is going to take care of this responsibility? Should I go? Should I not go? Great thoughts of heart. Why? It says, why do you abide among the sheepfolds? To hear the bleedings of the flock. A little sarcasm. Reuben, are you staying by your flocks just to hear the bleeding of the sheep while the rest of Israel goes and fights on your behalf so you can be delivered? They jeopardize their lives so you can have freedom. Why do you stay behind just to hear the bleedings of the sheep? He goes on to say, there was in Reuben, there was great searching of heart but no obedience. What a challenging thing. Great searching of heart, but no obedience. I thought a lot of thinking a lot about serving the Lord, but no obedience. What a challenge. That's the roll call for Reuben. Gilead, verse 17. Gilead is made up of Manasseh and Gad, two tribes. Gilead abode beyond the Jordan, never crossed the Jordan to help their fellow Israelites. Why did Dan remain in the ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode on their landings or by their creeks. They didn't come. Asher didn't come. Gilead didn't come. Dan didn't come. Reuben didn't come. God records all of those who didn't come. But then he does record those who did come. He says about Naphtali and Zebulon, they did come. He says about, about verse 15, the princes of Issachar, They did come. Naphtali came. Zebulun came. Benjamin came from the greatest distance in the smallest tribe. They came. Judah came. Manasseh came. Many, many came, and God records all these different ones who did come. But look at verse 23. God has very strong words for those who were unfaithful, those who didn't come and join the battle, those who didn't come and join in the efforts, give their efforts to the work of God. And he says about Maraz, Maroz, curse ye Maroz. This is the word of God. Curse ye Maroz, says an angel of the Lord. Curse you bitterly, the inhabitants thereof. Very strong language. Why? He says, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. But the very next verse, verse 24, blessed, blessed above women shall be jail, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked for water and she gave him milk and brought forth butter in a lordly dish and was faithful. I want to close this morning by telling you a little bit about about Fanny Crosby. How much do you know about Fanny Crosby? Now, you know she's a great hymn writer. You know she wrote Blessed Assurance, Rescue the Perishing. You know, she didn't write that until she was 40 years old. She lived to be 95 years old, and she wrote over 10,000 hymns. She also was the first woman to ever speak before Congress. 
President Polk would come to her place of work, which is an institute of the blind, to talk to her. She wrote political songs for politicians in Washington, D.C. Well, she had a she was raised in a Methodist home, but she wasn't saved until she was 40 years old. And she began to write hymns right away. On an average, she wrote six hymns a day. 10,000 hymns uh, from age 40 to 95 years old. On average, six hymns a day. She wrote so many hymns back in those days that they would have collections of hymns, hymn books, of 40 hymns or 50 hymns. Um, it was common that you would have a number of hymn writers. She wrote so many hymns that she developed 50 different pen names. So her name wasn't the only name in the hymn book as they would sell them. 50 different pen names. She was blinded when she had a little eye infection and a country doctor put on a mustard plaster, which is ground black mustard seeds, and put it on her eyes. She was blind, but she never complained all her life. You know, it says of her that she could play tag with the best of the boys and the girls as a young person in an open field with trees in the field. And they asked her how she could do that. They said, she said, I could feel the coolness under the leaves of the tree. And so I know I'm coming to a tree. One day she was playing and she ran into a tree trunk. And she said, how could that be? And they said, you know, that tree trunk has lost all its leaves. It's dead. All that's left is the tree trunk. But Fanny Crosby, she worked in rescue missions. She sang herself. She gave all the proceeds of all of she would earn $2 per hymn, maybe $3 if they're in a generous mood. Two to $3 a hymn, she gave it all to the Lord's work. She would go into rescue missions and she would give her testimony. She would sing songs. She gave her life every hymn that she wrote. She said, for every hymn that I write and gets published, she says, I pray that it would win souls for Christ. She was a little woman, probably not over five feet nine, blinded for her whole life. But she gave what she had. Back in that day, in the late 1800s, people would gather together, not so much today, in civic auditoriums, sometimes in parks, and they would have hymn sings. They would sing together. We don't do that today in our culture. And she would have her songs. She was a celebrity of, of, of a sense. Her, sings, her songs would be sung throughout the United States, in parks, civic auditoriums, and church basements. Never preached very much, never preached in a church. But her, her life made a difference, tremendous difference for God. hundred years later, nearly a hundred years later, her songs are still being sung. She's still making a difference. Maybe people are still being saved by her song. She was married. Husband died before she did. She had a child. Child died in infancy. She had a lot of heartaches, a lot of difficulties. But she kept on serving the Lord. And I would just challenge us to be like Deborah, make the Lord first, be willing, give of ourselves, give what we have, and uh, make a difference for our generation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, what you do with the little we have. Our loaves and our fishes, Father, you, you multiply them. You can do so much with so little. 
And so, Father, take our lives and take our hands and take our homes and take our resources, all that we have. Father, we ask you to use it for your honor, your glory. Make a difference, Father, through our lives in this generation. So we pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.